Inspired by the C.S. Lewis book, Mere Christianity, this podcast is about why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. Last week, I talked about what happens at Catholic Mass, but mostly on a superficial level. So there's two main parts of Mass, the Liturgy of the Word and the Liturgy of the Eucharist. So the Liturgy of the Word, that's where there's some prayers and songs, the reading of the Old Testament, Psalms, New Testament, the Gospels, and there's also a homily, which is kind of like a sermon. The second part, the liturgy of the Eucharist, is the Lord's Supper or communion. And so that's where we talked about the doctrine of transubstantiation in in Catholic minds, the bread and the wine, when, when the priest says a certain phrase over the bread and the wine, that is turned into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, transubstantiation means the substance is changed, but the accidents remain the same. So the accidents being the bread and the wine, if you took it to a lab, it, you know, it tastes like bread, it tastes like wine, uh, from a just a, a molecular level, it is bread and wine. But what Catholics are affirming is that it is truly the substance, the underlying substance is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And they emphasize that this is important because that means that Jesus Christ is really present in the Eucharist. So today we take a little bit deeper dive into the Mass and what is the real issue? What's the, the actually the, the big difference between the Protestant thoughts about Mass and Catholicism? Why is there such a disagreement? And so that's what we'll talk about today. Now you can always connect with me if you have questions at bearchristianity at gmail.com. You can also message me on Instagram at the real bear Martin. And today, instead of a commercial or a bear in the woods, I have a listener question. And this is from one of my best friends, Andrew May. He has a podcast of his own. It's called Andrew's Daily Five. And he knows more about music than anybody I know of. And so he does different music countdowns. And right now he's he's walking through the top 100 songs of the 80s. But if you like any of the decades before that, he started 50s, 60s, 70s. Now he's on the 80s. So check those out. He, he has other little special things he does as well, like, like top Disney songs and stuff like that. So anyway, check out his podcast. But this question is from him. He says, what happens to leftovers from the Mass? If the bread and wine are fully changed into the body and blood of Jesus, do they do they change back into bread and wine or do they remain? So they, the answer is that in, the, in Catholic thought, they remain the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So the wine, the extra wine is consumed by the priest and the deacons after the, the common people, the crowd, have had their the, the communion. The priest and deacons consume the extra and then The chalice, the cup, is washed with water, and that water is poured down a special sink that empties directly to the ground. It doesn't go into any sort of sewage system set up because that's the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, Now, the bread, in the same way, it remains the body of Jesus Christ. It's called the consecrated host. And that is stored in a, a permanent box that's sort of built into the, the Catholic church there, and it's called the tabernacle. So the bread is stored there, and that can be locked up. Now, some people take the bread and, and wine. The wine can be uh, put in these little special jars so, they don't, so it doesn't spill. Uh, the bread is stored in a little box called a Pyx, P-Y-X. And the, the reason that some people take those home with them is because they, on their way home, they can stop by and visit the elderly or the sick, people who can't get to the church to celebrate Mass. And so in, in that way, the elderly and sick can partake of communion. 
Uh, now, sometimes the bread is placed in a monstrance. And this is like an elaborate display for the consecrated host to be placed inside. And th this can be displayed at times of Eucharistic adoration. And so I pass a Catholic church on my way home from one of our offices. And I've seen the sign sometimes where they're advertising different times of the week for Eucharistic adoration. And so people will come and sit before the, the consecrated host, the bread that's placed in this monstrance, and they can worship and they can be in the presence of Christ. Again, remember, that is no longer bread. It is the body of Jesus Christ. And then in, in, on some special events, the monstrance can be you know, paraded around the city so that people can worship that. And so that, that it can, can worship and, and give honor to the body of Christ. Now, this leads me to a, a question. What is it called when you take something made by human hands and worship it as if it is God? So this makes me think of the golden calf. In Exodus 32, 8, the Lord says this about the nation of Israel when they, when they make the golden calf. He says, They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said. Now, this is really important. Notice what it, the Israelites said about the golden calf. It wasn't that they thought that there was there was a God who brought them out of Egypt, and and but they can't see that God. Moses has gone up on Mount Sinai. We don't know if he's ever coming back. So there there's this there's some God who brought us out of Egypt, but now we're going to worship a different God. That is not what the people say. Notice what they say here. They say about the golden calf. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So to this physical object made by human hands. They are associating the characteristics of the God who brought them out of Egypt. And so they, in a way, they're, they're trying to worship the God who brought them out of Egypt, but they are, they are associating that God with this golden calf. So again, what is it called when you take something made by human hands and worship it as if it is God? That sounds like idolatry to me. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about Catholic Mass. A, a good, I may have mentioned this last week, but uh, some of the resources that have been very helpful for me. The Catechism of the Catholic Church is probably the best one. Uh, starting at Catechism 1324, and, and you can download the Catechism of the Catholic Church uh, PDF for free. It's, it's everywhere online, so it's really easy to get a hold of. But um, starting in ca at Catechism 1324, that starts a long section where the Church teaches about the Eucharist. And they pull from, in the Catechism, they're pulling from different Church councils in history. So that's a really good sort of uh, single resource to learn a lot about what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Uh, another book that that was helpful for me is by Brant Petrie, and that was recommended by a Catholic Answers video I was watching. I've mentioned Catholic Answers uh, uh, several times. That's a really good resource too, a pro-Catholic resource. But uh, this book by Brant Petrie, and that's P-I-T-R-E. It's Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. And so that that was very helpful to help to kind of get in the mind of a Catholic as they approach the Eucharist. And and also um, some of the reasons why they believe the things they do that that they believe. Uh, anyway, the in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1324, it says the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. 
And then a Catholic Answers tract about the Eucharist explains this. What do they mean by the source and the summit of the Christian life? And it says this quote, It's the source because the Eucharist enables us to make present and offer anew Jesus Christ one redemptive sacrifice of Calvary, which began with his passion. And they cite some catechisms 1362 through 68 and also catechism 1341. Now, continuing the quote, it's the summit because the Eucharist is truly a foretaste of heaven in which we partake of Jesus's body and blood as heaven and earth become most profoundly one. So something that Catholics really, they emphasize over and over and over again about the Eucharist is that Jesus Christ is, there's a real presence because he is the, his body and, and blood are right there being partaken of. You are really present with Jesus Christ. Now, the important thing today is that they, they believe that this is a real sacrifice. When you celebrate mass as a Catholic, that you are, are offering a sacrifice to God. And, and so that there's forgiveness of sins in that. You are representing the sacrifice of Jesus at Calvary, Calvary being when Jesus was crucified. So uh, you are representing this sacrifice. This is what's really important. Catholics are not saying that Jesus is re-killed over and over and over again every time Mass is celebrated. They, Jesus died once, okay? There's only one sacrifice, but in celebrating the Mass, Catholics are sort of mystically celebrating the, the sacrifice Jesus offered on the cross. Now, here's another thing that you got to grasp. When Jesus was celebrating the Last Supper, the night but when he was betrayed and, and the night before he was, was crucified, when he's up in the upper room with the disciples, Catholics believe that also was a sacrifice, that Jesus was offering them his body and blood as a sacrifice. So, that, so the sacrifice of Calvary on, on the cross, the Last Supper before that, and Mass celebrated after that is all in a strange, it's tough to explain type of way, it is all one sacrifice. That is what Catholics are saying when they say the Mass is a sacrifice. It's not a new sacrifice. It's not a different sacrifice. It's the same sacrifice that they are offering anew to, to God the Father. But it, so it's the same sacrifice that they are they are offering anew, but it's not a new sacrifice. Okay, I know I've repeated myself a million times here, but that was tough for me to get in my mind. And I, I, I had that wrong before I really started investigating what Catholics believe. So hopefully that's helpful. Um, now, let's also talk about grace in Catholicism. I may have mentioned this in like way previous episodes when I first started talking about Roman Catholicism, but grace in the Catholic mind is sort of like a commodity. You, you constantly need more and more of it. And so that's very different from the way that I think the Bible teaches about grace. But anyway, think of it like a commodity. You you got to have more and more. So different things that you do in Catholicism help you get more grace. So in order to get grace, the grace of God, you need the Catholic Church. Go figure. Uh, you need the Pope. You need the, the priest. You need the saints. The saints can help you uh, attain grace. But the best way to get more and more grace is by celebrating Mass. Going to Mass helps you get more grace. Now, in, in Catholicism, 
there's two type, two basic types of grace, and this is from a Catholic Answers tract. It's called Grace, what it is and what it does. So these two types of grace are sanctifying grace and actual grace. Sanctifying grace, and again, this is as defined by the Catholic Answers tract here. It says, sanctifying grace stays in the soul. It's what makes the soul holy. It gives the soul supernatural life. More properly, it is supernatural life. So if you have sanctifying grace, that is supernatural life. Now, the other form, actual grace, actual grace, and again, quote by the Catholic Answers website, actual grace, by contrast, is a supernatural push or encouragement. It's a supernatural kick in the pants. It gets the will and intellect moving so we can seek out and keep sanctifying grace. So actual grace is sort of a motivation by God. He, he's constantly giving you these actual graces. Everybody gets these, okay? And it's it's that little voice inside you. You, you know, you need to go to confession. You need to go to mass. Don't miss mass. It's those type of things. It, that, that is constantly being given by God. That's actual grace. And, and if you... Uh, if you act with that actual grace, if you are uh, be obedient to or you go along with that actual grace, then that is how you get the sanctifying grace. And that's the supernatural life. You can obtain supernatural life by yielding to actual graces you receive. God keeps giving you these divine pushes, and all you have to do is go along. And then a little bit further down, it says, once you have supernatural life, once sanctifying grace is in your soul, you can increase it by every supernaturally good action you do. Okay, so you, if you have sanctifying grace, you can increase the amount of that grace that you have. You can get more of that commodity. You can get more grace by doing what? The very first thing that they mention in this Catholic Answers tract is receiving communion. Now, you can also get more grace by saying prayers, performing corporal works of mercy. And so then this, this tract is, is asking the person, is it worth increasing sanctifying grace once you have it? That essentially, people may say, well, once I get this sanctifying grace, do I need more of it? I mean, if I already have supernatural life, why, why would I need more supernatural life? And, and here's their answer here. It's enough to get you into heaven. So if you if you have even the minimum amount of, of sanctifying grace, this tract says it's enough to get you into heaven, but it may not be enough to sustain itself. The minimum isn't good enough because it's easy to lose the minimum. We must continually seek God's grace, continually respond to the actual graces God is working within us, inclining us to turn to him and do good. So catch that. That's really important. If you if you have the minimum amount of sanctifying grace, the, the, the least amount you have, the less amount you have, the more likely it is that you'll lose it, and which means you got to go through the Catholic Church to get more of this sanctifying grace. You're, so in, in Catholicism, you're constant. There's this constant struggle to try to get more and more grace. You got to keep piling it on. If you start to lose some, then eventually you'll you'll lose all of that supernatural life. And so that that's the that's the constant working of the Catholic going to mass, confession, you know, penance, uh, just all the stuff that they do in Catholicism is to try to keep this grace flowing towards you.
So again, the Catholic Mass is the best way to get more of this sanctifying grace. Now, the the real issue is not so much, when it, when it comes to Catholic Mass, it's not so much transubstantiation in the metaphysics or the philosophical arguments or, you know, how can the bread and wine actually be the body and blood of Christ? It's not, it's not that superficial. The real issue is deeper than that, and that is what is the purpose of, of Catholic Mass. What is our, what is going on there? I've already mentioned that Catholics believe that it is a sacrifice. So what is actually happening on a spiritual level at Catholic Mass? And so transubstantiation is only a big deal because the Roman Catholic Church needs that to be the body and blood of Christ because they're saying that it is that Mass is a sacrifice. They are literally representing the the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his body and blood. So that's why it's a big deal, not not just the philosophical argument, but it's it's what is happening on a spiritual level. So Mass, or Eucharist, is a sacrifice. The Council of Trent, well, actually, let me read the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's number 1367, but in that, they are citing the Council of Trent. And it says this, quote, The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of priest, who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. And since in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner, this sacrifice is truly propitiatory. Now, propitiatory comes from propitiation, and I have a a great little resource. It's called the Pocket Dictionary of Theological Terms. Propitiation means an offering that turns away the wrath of God directed against sin. So an example of this word propitiation is 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So I agree with Catholicism that Jesus Christ's sacrifice was a propitiatory sacrifice. It turned away the wrath of God directed against sin. However, I disagree that the Mass is that same sacrifice that's offered by Jesus on the cross because it has to be represented over and over and over again. When you when you presented Christ's sacrifice at Mass last week, it's not effective in remitting the sins you've committed since then. Therefore, you got to come this week and represent that sacrifice over and over again in order for it to be effective. And so as we as we walk through this you're going to see that there is a difference between the sacrifice that Jesus gave of himself on the cross and the sacrifice that the Catholic Church describes as what's happening at mass. Now, they can say that the last supper and mass and Jesus on the cross is all the same sacrifice. They can say that all they want. But when we learn from the Bible what the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is and what it does, that is different from what is happening at Catholic Mass. So I don't care what Catholics want to just say over and over again that it's the same sacrifice, a single sacrifice. It's all the same. But the Bible describes the the cross of Christ different than what the Mass is. And so therefore, it cannot be the same sacrifice. That's the big issue. So why do Catholics think that that they have to represent Christ. Why are they representing the sacrifice of Christ over and over again? They draw a lot of this from the Last Supper. When Jesus was having the Last Supper with his disciples in the upper room, 
you know, I interpret that that they are celebrating the Passover meal and Jesus is changing some of the symbols of the Passover meal that the Jews would have, you know, been very familiar with and he's applying them to himself. So that's that's what I believe is happening at Last Supper. However, Catholics believe that Jesus is offering them the the sacrifice of his body and blood. It is a sacrifice. The Last Supper was a sacrifice. That's important to know. So wh- why do they why do they think that? Why do Catholics think that? Well, Jesus is celebrating the Passover and the Passover for the Jew was a remembrance, a memorial of the Jews coming out of Egypt. You can read all about this in the book of Exodus. So the Jews were enslaved in Egypt, and there's the you know there's the ten plagues. The tenth plague was the death of the firstborn son, and God tells the Israelites, if you will sacrifice a lamb, and spread the blood on the doorpost of your house, when the angel of the Lord comes and kills the firstborn in each household. He will pass over your house if he sees the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Now, the Lord tells the, the people of Israel this in Exodus twelve fourteen. It says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statue forever that you shall keep as a feast. So, so it was a holiday, a Jewish holiday, the, the celebration of the Passover, where they remembered what the Lord did for them when he brought them out of Egypt. Now, for, for in the Catholic mind, they're saying that the Jews, when they celebrate the Passover, they are in a, in a mystical way, they are participating in the original Passover. And, and I've, I've heard some, some Jewish rabbis quoted as kind of teaching this concept that when you celebrate the Passover as a Jew, in, in a weird way, you're sort of back with the original Israelites in Egypt as they celebrated the Passover. You're really present with them and so you are participating in that as well. So they say, well, if Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his disciples and he changed some of the symbols, now when we celebrate the sacrifice of the Mass, we are in a mystical way going back and participating with the disciples in that same exact sacrifice that Jesus offered in the Last Supper. And again, and it's the same sacrifice that he offered on the cross. So that's that's how um, the, the Catholics are thinking. And they'll use 1 Corinthians 5, 7, B to support this because Paul says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Uh, just for your information, if you see Pasch, if you like, if you're reading the Catechism of the Catholic Church and you see the, the word Pasch or Paschal, that's P-A-S-C-H-A-L, that Paschal lamb is the same thing as the Passover lamb. And so Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. All right. So if the the Last Supper is a real sacrifice, and it's the same sacrifice as Calvary and the same sacrifice as Mass, when when you celebrate Mass, you're participating in that the the same sacrifice that that Jesus Christ offered on the cross. Uh, Also, the Catholics will say that when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, that that is very sacrificial language. And so, therefore, Jesus is is obviously talking about the Last Supper being a sacrifice. And so I'll explore some of the Bible passages in the following weeks and really break those down. But that's that's just the basics of how Catholics kind of get there with, with their belief of this all, but in you know, the Last Supper, the sacrifice on the cross, and the sacrifice of the Mass all being the same. It, it's the same concept that when you celebrate Mass in a, in a mystical way, you're sort of back celebrating the Last Supper sacrifice with the disciples.
Now, my response to all this, and you probably already see this coming, is that Catholics are, are getting, they're, they're wanting way too much from the Last Supper. Yes, it was a Passover meal, and Jesus changes the symbolic meaning of the Passover. So the Passover lamb was a protection from God's wrath, and it helped bring the people out of bondage in Egypt. And so Jesus, being the Passover lamb, he protects us from God's wrath. His blood protects us from his from God's wrath. But and, and, and also Jesus' blood as the Passover lamb, it frees us from the bondage of sin. Now, if the Jews so so think about this, that you know, this idea that when you celebrate the Passover now, you're going back in time and celebrating it with the with the, the Jews there, the Israelites in Egypt. Now, for the Jews, when they were celebrating Passover, you know, centuries after the the original Passover, if they if they didn't celebrate Passover, they didn't fall back into slavery in Egypt. They didn't have to represent this Passover lamb over and over again in order to keep, you know, to to stay out of Egyptian bondage. Uh, and, and and they didn't have to represent the Passover lamb and put blood on their door. And if they didn't, then the angel of the Lord would come and kill their firstborn. They're not representing the Passover lamb. They It's a celebration at this point for the Jews. They are celebrating what has already occurred. It's not in fear of it happening over again if they don't keep this up, if they don't keep representing Passover to the, the Passover lamb to God. Now, this idea that the sacrifice of the Mass is the same exact sacrifice as the cross, just think about it. Mass is repeated over and over again. It is also a reminder of sin. You you have to constantly keep coming back to Mass to get more of this grace, this sanctifying grace. You have to earn more merit. You're you're constantly having to to earn more and more to, to stay up to date to stay in a good relationship with God. Remember, if you if you have just the minimal amount of sanctifying grace, it's possible just to lose all of it. And so technically, a person could celebrate mass thousands of times, commit a mortal sin, die and go to hell. Therefore, the the effect of the sacrifice at mass is only temporary and finite. So is that is that the same as the sacrifice Jesus offered on the cross? Dr. Ludwig Ludwig Ott is a Catholic priest. He wrote Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma. Now, this was published in 1952, but an extremely popular book in Catholicism. And he says this, quote, The sacrifice of the Mass affects the remission of the temporal punishments for sin, which still remain after the forgiveness of the guilt of sins and of the eternal punishment. And, it's, and so he says this, listen, the measurement of the punishments of sins that are remitted is, propor- is proportional in the case of the living to the degree of perfection in their disposition, their, their attitude, their seriousness, their reverence in which they approach the mass. That that's, he said, Dr. Ludwig Gott says that that is proportional to the amount of uh, the effect in remission of sins that you have from the mass. So when you come to Mass, you can partake of the body and blood of Jesus, presenting the sacrifice that Jesus offered on the cross to God the Father, yet the body and blood of Jesus is, is, has a minimal, or not a minimal, it has a limited effect based on your own dispositions in, in partaking of that. 
Here's, an, here's another quote from, from Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma. As a propitiatory and impetratory, now impetration or impetratory is just a request. So as a propiti, uh, propitiatory and impetratory sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Mass possesses a finite external value since the operations of propitiation and impetration refer to human beings who as creatures can receive a finite act only. This explains the practice of the church in offering the holy sacrifice of the mass frequently for the same intention. So he's saying that because we're human beings, we can only get a finite value out of offering this sacrifice of mass. That's why we have to do mass over and over and over again, because it never fully perfects. We have to keep coming back to it in order to get more and more, because we can only receive a finite amount of benefit. Now, Think about this. Again, I'm comparing that what, what the Bible says about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross versus what mass is. So mass does not perfect or purify the, the person who's partaking of it. It only remits temporal punishments. So and it, it's a limited amount, and it's based on the person's disposition when receiving the Eucharist. And so this leads me to my indulgence soapbox. I tend to always, you know, find a way to link it back to indulgences. But when you get, when you try to earn a plenary indulgence, you have to uh, partake of mass. That's that's part of the the deal. Um, so you do partake of mass, but the indulgence adds to what you receive from mass. So if you have done something that would earn you a plenary indulgence and you part, you have partaken of mass and you do all the requirements, then a plenary indulgence remits all of the temporal punishments from sin. All of them. If you get a plenary indulgence and then you die the second afterwards, you go straight to heaven, no purgatory. Okay, But if you simply just go to Mass and you haven't done the things that are required for a plenary indulgence, then only some of these temporal punishments are remitted based on your disposition. So, so in that way, this plenary indulgence is greater, has a greater effect or adds to what the body and blood of Jesus Christ does for you. In, in Mass, they say that they are offering the same sacrifice that Jesus offered on the cross, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, yet its effect is less than what can be done with a plenary indulgence. That, that is a huge problem for me. If, if it's truly the body and blood of Jesus Christ, is that not enough to perfect you? Also, with, with Mass, you know, the Catholic Church stands in the way of you and God. They, you have to go through the Catholic Church. So if you've committed a mortal sin, for instance, you can't just say, God, I have done something wicked in your sight, and I realize that I am a sinner. I have committed this mortal sin, and please forgive me. And I know the only way that I have forgiveness is through what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross at Calvary. Please forgive me, God, for this terrible sin that I've committed against you. That is not enough. In, for Catholicism, you've got to go through the priest. You got to go to confession. You got to go to. You got to do penance before you can partake of the sacrifice at Mass. So, so you've got to go through the Catholic Church before you can get to the sacrifice that Jesus offered for you. This that sacrifice is not available to you until you do all the Catholic stuff. Now, Catholics may say, well, if someone committed a mortal sin and they're you know, they're repentant 
and they're on their way to the church and they they die on their way to the church, God knows that they're trying to get to church to do all the Catholic stuff so that they can be forgiven and be in a right relationship. God knows their heart, the intentions of their heart, and so he can still save them. Well, my argument would be if God can do it in that situation, then why do we need the Catholic Church? It's like, well, as long as you have a chance, you, you got to go to Mass. You got to do all the Catholic stuff. That's what's required of you. But in, in other cases, God knows the intention of your heart. So the Catholic Church, it's almost just like, well, they're just trying to keep themselves involved. They're, they're, they're like a bureaucracy who just you know gets in the way and costs a ton of money, but we still they still have to try to find themselves to be useful. And so you've got to go through them to get other benefits. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So now I want to go to the Bible and look at what the Bible teaches about the sacrifice that Jesus offered on the cross. And so we find a lot of this information in Hebrews. Now, the context of the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is contrasting a a lot of the Jewish Old Testament stuff, and he's showing that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than angels or prophets. He's better than Moses. He's a better sacrifice. He's a better high priest. Jesus is better. If you were going to sum up the book of Hebrews, Jesus is better. And the author of Hebrews is saying, Jewish Christians, don't go back to the old ways. Trust in Jesus. He is He is better in every way. So just keep that in mind. Also keep in mind, If the author of Hebrews was aware of apostolic tradition, I can't imagine that Catholics would say he's not. So if the author of Hebrews was aware of of what was going on in the church, and the author of Hebrews was a Christian, he participated in Mass in Acts 2.42. The Mass is called the breaking of bread. That's one of the terms the Catholic Church uses for Mass, the breaking of bread. So the earliest Christians were participating in Mass that, that at least that's what Catholics say. If the author of Hebrews was fully aware of all this, then why did he write the way he wrote? Okay, so as we read through these passages, if if you're a Catholic and you're writing the book of Hebrews, knowing what Mass is, then why would you write and, and word it in such ways without clarifying what you're talking about? So just keep that in mind as I read these verses. Hebrews 9, 24 through 26. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is... He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 1 and 2. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? So here, there's the shadow versus the true form. So the shadow being the, the Old Testament sacrifices, the true form being that sacrifice that Jesus offered. So the true form, it, it, the Bible says it makes perfect those who draw near, those who who participate in this sacrifice, it makes perfect. 
what they do. And the, and it says that if a sacrifice is truly perfect, like the one Jesus offered, he says rhetorically, would not the worshipers cease to offer more sacrifices because they, they would there would no longer be any consciousness of sin? But instead, in the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, every year, the priest had to make a sacrifice for himself and then offer a sacrifice for the people. But year after year after year, they had to keep making these sacrifices, knowing that the, sacri- the, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin and that their sins were not truly taken away. So it was a constant reminder of sin. They had to keep doing it. But instead, the, in, in Hebrews, the, the verses I read, it says that if it was a true sacrifice, the true form of the sacrifice, there would no longer be any consciousness of sin. In Romans 5.1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, I would say that peace with God, a relationship of peace is not a relationship where you could constantly lose that peace. You know, you're, there's, there's a tension there that if you don't do all the right things, you can lose it. You could commit a mortal sin and completely fall out of God's graces and go to hell. That is not peace. There, but rather, the Bible says that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then Romans eight fifteen says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The, the spirit of slavery, you, you, there's this fear that you're constantly going to do something wrong and fall back into the, the old way. There's a fear of being separated again. But rather, the, the Bible says the Christian is adopted into God's family. As an adopted son of God, then they're, they're, that relationship is permanent. So Jesus' sacrifice, it it makes perfect those who draw near. The sacrifice of mass does not perfect a person. Remember the quote from Ludwig, Ludwig Ott. It, it, mass only removes some of your temporal punishments, and those the, the, re, the effect of those is based on your disposition and limited by your humanity. Now, that is not the author's point at all in Hebrews. At the end of chapter 9 and the first part of chapter 10, the author of Hebrews is constantly using phrases like once for all, talking about the sacrifice, a single offering. And so Catholics, again, I've already stated this, They'll say, well, Mass is this single offering. It, it was offered once for all because when we celebrate Mass, we are identifying with that same offering, that single offering offered by Jesus. Here's my main argument, though. Does it accomplish, does the sacrifice of Mass accomplish what the Bible says Christ's sacrifice on the cross accomplished? I would argue that they're different things. You can say they're the same all you want to, but they're, they're described in different ways. The, the way the Bible describes the cross of Christ, and the way you describe Mass and what happens at Mass are different. Hebrews 10, 8 through 14, when he said above, this is talking about Jesus, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. So the author of Hebrews says, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
and every priest. Now, so now he's going to make a, a contrast here. He says, and every priest, talking about in the Old Testament, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So the true sacrifice of Jesus perfects those for all time. It is not something that dispenses more grace so that you can live a better life, but then you you sin and then so you need more of this grace and you got to keep coming back to it to get more grace in order to live better. It's not something that must be represented over and over again to the Father. What does Jesus do after making the sacrifice? It says he sits down at the right hand of God. In the the Jewish temple, there was no place for the priest to sit down because they were constantly offering sacrifices. There, There was no rest. But Jesus sat down after offering his sacrifice. It was once for all. It was it, it is finished. That's what Jesus said on the cross. To telestai, it is done. It is finished. It's an accounting term. The books are balanced. If if you pay off your house, you can you know hold the deed to your house and look at your wife and say to telestai, it is done. It is finished. It is paid for. That's what Jesus did on the cross. So again, the the author of Hebrews, if he's c- completely aware of Catholic mass and that he was breaking bread with with all the apostles and the Christians and they were doing this constantly and they knew that it was offering, they were representing the sacrifice of Jesus over and over and over again. Why would he just completely uh, in, in the way he's writing, it's like he's drawing this contrast. He's saying there are these offerings that are offered repeatedly over and over again. In the Old Testament, that is not good. Don't go to that. Rather, Christ offered a single sacrifice once for all time that perfects those who draw near. So he in no way clarifies. Surely, you know, if we're thinking about Catholic Mass, if the author of Hebrews was perfectly aware that he was continually offering, representing this sacrifice, surely there, there would have been some clarification here. So in wrapping things up, for me, the Lord's Supper is a celebration and a memorial of what the Lord has done. It is not a sacrifice I must participate in over and over again without that sacrifice ever fully perfecting me. Again, I rem- I am remembering and celebrating what the Lord has done. Just like for the Passover, the Israelites were celebrating what the Lord had done. He had brought them out of Egypt. And at Calvary, Jesus paid my debt on the cross. Jesus saved me. And so I am not offering this continual sacrifice. It is it is about what Jesus has done and not about what I must do. In John 6, and, and I'm likely going to get to this passage next week because John 6 is one of the main passages that Catholics use in their defense of the Eucharist. Um, so I'll talk about this next week. But in John 6, verses 37 through 40, listen to this. Jesus is talking to the people and he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me 
but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So in summary here, the Father has given a group of people to the Son. The Son will not lose any of them which are given by the Father. Now, how do you know if you are in this group of people? It it says it right here. Are you looking to Jesus? Do you believe in him? That's how you know if you are, you are part of this group. So if so, you are secure in the hands of God. You don't need to represent Christ over and over again to the Father to get more sanctifying grace in hopes that you don't slip out of the Roman Catholic state of grace. Rather, it is the Holy Trinity's mission to save you, and they do not fail. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do not fail in what they set out to do. If the Father has given you to the Son, and the Son seeks to do the will of the Father, then he will raise you up on the last day. That's how secure you are when you when you have faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 29 through 34, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Listen to this. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us.